someone who has not been with us, or maybe this is uh, a visit or first time, or you've been out of the loop, um, our, our pastor, senior pastor, has been out for some time with health issues, and so please continue to pray for him. And so I just want to open us with a word of prayer for that specifically, but just also to focus on our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we sing these songs that, that we've just sang, proclaiming your might, your power, that you are our guide. And Father, we commit Pastor Tim to you. We commit his health to you. And Father, we also commit ourselves to you, that our hearts would be open the power and work that you want to do in us. And it's in your holy and powerful name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is always an honor to be able to share with you guys, and especially the week after Easter. So, happy one week after Easter. Is that is that weird to say, like kind of awkward to say? I mean, I guess it's over, Easter's over, but I'll still say that. Happy one week after Easter. In fact, if you would, turn to someone next to you and just tell them, happy one week after Easter. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll give you time to turn to them say, happy one week after Easter. It's not, it's not that weird. I mean, you can go into the Hallmark and buy a related birthday card, right? I mean, I guess you don't go in and buy a happy five days after Mother's Day card or, or anything like that. It's, that would be kind of weird, but happy one week after Easter. Okay. It's weird. Who feels like it's weird? Just raise your hand. It's weird. Why are you wishing us a happy Easter? A couple of you guys are honest. The rest of you are thinking it in your head. I mean, it's, it's awkward because Easter's over, right? I mean, Easter was last week and and everything at, at Meyer, all the Easter stuff is all in clearance now. And the directions at TJ Maxx are all back up with full price. Um, Easter, it's over. And if you're like me, you're left with just a, a carton full of colored hard-boiled eggs in your fridge and maybe a bag of Easter candy. Because Easter's over. And for me, that bag of Easter candy is the last thing to go. Now, I have to tell you kind of a confession about this. See, my mom, when we were growing up, would give us candy for everything. And we would get candy in our Easter baskets, in our stockings at Christmas, we'd get candy at Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day. I mean, I felt like we were always getting candy. And my brother and sister loved it, because they would just like open it up and start eating it right away, and, and they'd eat through it, and by the end of the week, all the candy would be gone. But I was a little bit different. I'm a saver. And I would always open up my candy and look at it and look through all the different candies. And I would put it into a little Ziploc bag to save it for later. In fact, just to prove that this isn't just a story I made up for a good sermon illustration, I brought my Easter candy in my Ziploc with me. So this, this year, my parents were able to come to visit us for Easter last week, and my sister as well. And so my mom brought Easter baskets, and there was lots of candy in them, as as is her usual. And I opened it up, and immediately my sister went to the kitchen and brought back a Ziploc bag, because she knew that that's what I, that I always do that. And so I put 
my Easter candy in this little Ziploc. But the problem with this is that sometimes I forget about it. And then I come across it later in my kitchen. And it's just a, a, a stale little reminder of Easter's past or Valentine's Day or, or Christmas. I think I found a, a bag of Valentine's Day candy in my kitchen a couple days ago. Um, I, I just kind of I forget about it. And I don't throw it away because I think maybe I'll eat it and I, I want to hold on to it. And, but it, it goes stale. And then what I'm left with is a bag of, of Easter candy or whatever holiday. And I'm thinking, oh, well, I can't give it to my teens because they're going to tell me that it's old. So I guess I'll give it to Kayla and she'll give it to me. They don't care. It's a real thing. I give my old candy to Kayla because my kids will eat it. Now, some of you guys are, are like my brother and sister, and you'll just eat the candy right away. Or maybe it's not you. It's your kids, and they're like little greyhounds, and they sniff it out, and then it's gone. And it's just candy can't stay in your house. But some of you guys are, are like me, and, and you save it. But then sometimes it, it goes stale. Well, regardless if you are a save it in a little Ziploc bag or, or a eat it right away kind of person, this bad for me is kind of a little subtle, silly reminder that another Easter season, or whatever holiday it is, another Easter season is over. But can I tell you today, the message of Easter isn't like a bag of Easter candy. See, sometimes we treat it like it is. We kind of say, well, Easter's gone, Easter's over, we'll get more Easter next year, I, I will get another Ziploc bag with Easter candy next year. Or we say, alright, back to normal, the funny games is over, family's out of town, time to stop celebrating, there's no more candy. And we just kind of forget about the miracle of Easter as the year goes on. We let it kind of go stale. Or, we eat it all up on Easter, we, we love Easter, I'm a person, I, I love Easter, my teens know, but I do love Easter. And, and sometimes we, we eat it all up, we're so excited to celebrate Easter, and it's kind of like this sugar rush. We enjoy it for a moment, and then it dies off, and the excitement of Easter is kind of gone, and we're back into the, the humdrum, and it's normal. But the message of Easter isn't like this bag of Easter because it wasn't meant to just be gobbled up really quickly and forgotten. And it also doesn't go stale. The message is supposed to carry on all year long. And it stays fresh and sweet. In fact, next year when we get to another Easter, it's meant to be even sweeter. So... What is the message of Easter? I mean, surely we, we know the message of Easter. We just heard it last week, or even if you weren't here with us, you, you may have been visiting family and you heard it somewhere else that you were. We just heard the message, message of Easter. Last week, if you were with us here at Lakeview, we had the privilege of hearing from our assistant, D.S. Chris Williams. And, and he talked about how Easter was this turning point for the rest of history, how it was this time when everything changed for humanity. And Christ won the ultimate victory that would make all other victories possible. He focused on the victory of transformation, 
of change that God made possible and that he invites us into. And he kind of gave us some, some tips on how to do that. And the greatest victory that he talked about that Christ made possible is the salvation from sin and death that we receive. I mean, that that's the greatest victory, is it not? To be saved from sin and death. And through that, God made possible a way for us to be reunited with God's presence. Peter, in his first letter to the churches, describes that very same victory in this way. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, this is the message of Easter. This is that that imperishable inheritance the reason that we rejoice is our living hope. And that hope, that living hope, is that we live, that we have life. It's the promise of a resurrection that we see because of Christ's resurrection. And we're not bound by sin and death, but Christ made a way for us to live. This, that, that is the message of Easter. And if you, you didn't hear that last week, you didn't have your ears open or you weren't in the right place to hear it. I mean, that, that's what Easter is. But what do we do with it? What do we do with that Easter message? If it's not supposed to just, like a bag of candy, grow stale or just disappear, what do we do with it? What do we do with the message of Easter? If you would open up, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter, where I just read from, we're going to look at a passage in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter, chapter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, that's because of this message, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, what do we do with the message of Easter? The hope that we have now? We prepare. In verse 13 there, that therefore preparing for action. In some versions it says, gird up the loins of your mind. The picture here is of someone in, in Bible times wearing a long flowing robe. 
And, and those of you who are ladies and have worn a dress, or anyone else who may have worn a dress, um, if you try to walk in a dress or robe or something long like that, you can't move very quickly, right? And so if you, if you want to move quickly, you have to kind of pick up your skirts, right? And so the picture here is of a person in, in Peter's time here wearing these long robes, because that's what men and women would wear, and, and tucking it up into their belts girding it up into their belts. This way they could move more freely and be able to move quickly. It's getting all that loose fabric out of the way. Anything that would hinder them from being able to move quickly. That, that's what this picture is. Prepare your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And what Peter is saying is get rid of anything that will hinder your mind from being able to do the task ahead. Get rid of any loose thoughts that aren't helpful. He's saying, you've heard this message of Easter, this message of hope. So get ready. Do you have anything hindering your mind from what God has in store? Prepare. Okay, well, prepare for what? I mean, it's one thing to just say prepare. If we don't know what we're preparing for, what good is that? Well, Peter tells us. He says, prepare for the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking here about heaven. Being in God's presence. See, grace, the definition of grace is getting something that we don't deserve. And I don't know about you, but I certainly don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve heaven. It's a grace that God gives us. And it comes with that new hope that we have because of Easter. It's, it's the hope, the grace that when Jesus returns, those who have believed in this hope will get to experience the grace of heaven. And, and we'll get to spend eternity in his presence. That is this grace that, that Peter is saying we're preparing for. And so he's saying, now that you have hope, prepare for the day you will experience that grace. Get your minds ready for being in heaven. Okay, so we have this message, and Peter says prepare because of that message. Prepare for what? The grace of heaven. How? Ah. This is, this is where we need to get. See, because it's, it's not useful to us if we just say, well, we're, we're going to prepare, but we don't know how to prepare. You're going on a trip and you don't know how to pack. You don't know where to start. So how do we prepare? We prepare, according to this passage, by being so reminded. By being single-minded. Now, sober can, can mean a couple different things in, in our language. Sober, on one hand, could be, for example, the events of last week <coughs> that we heard about Sri Lanka. And they're awful, terrible events. And, and we hear about them, and it's sobering. It, it makes us sorrowful and sad. That's one sense of the word sober. But the other sense of the word sober means uninhibited, not blocked by anything. It means you don't have 
It's clear-headed. And so Paul, Peter, isn't saying here, okay, be sad in your preparation. He's saying, be clear-headed. Be without distraction. Prepare your mind by being sober-minded and setting your hope singly focused on the future grace of heaven. Okay, so, so we prepare by being sober-minded. We also prepare, he says, by being obedient. Specifically, Peter says, as obedient children. That word obedient literally means to be under hearing or understanding. It's to hear something, in this case, the message of hope, the message of Easter that we're talking about, and to submit to it, to put yourself under its authority. And so we prepare for heaven by placing ourselves under the authority of the Father in heaven by obeying the commands that he set forth in Scripture. But part of that obedience is played out in Peter's next instruction. He says, okay, prepare by being sober-minded, prepare by being obedient, prepare by not conforming to our past ways and passions. Now just think for a minute. What are your past ways? Because this is different for all of us. It's different based on your, your story, your experiences. Your past ways are probably different from my past ways. And your spouse's or your friend's past ways. For Peter's listeners here, the past ways would have been blindness to the truth. Or ignorance. Or, or maybe even worshipping other gods. For us, it could be a life of sin, pride, anger, addiction. Or it could just be a life of self-reliance and selfishness. So just think before we move on here, what are your past ways? See, because Peter says, regardless of what those past ways are, don't fall back into them. If you're going to live in a new hope, your life itself should be new too. And this leads to Peter's final instruction of preparation. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our rest of our time here. His final instruction of preparation is we prepare by being holy. Now this is the the holy grail of commandments, pun fully intended. Um, this is that that be holy. I mean, we've we've heard this. If you've spent any time in church, be holy as I am holy. It's it's this term we, we kind of throw around, and especially if you're familiar with the, the Wesleyan Church, you know that holiness is a distinctive of our denomination. It's it's part of the reason why our denomination is is what it is today. But sometimes I feel like this idea of holiness, being holy, is just kind of this untouchable, lofty idea in the church. It's just kind of like, holy. Holy. What does that mean? I don't know, but holy. What, what do I, I don't know, I'm questions. It's holy. It is, like I said, that, that holy grail where it's like, we, we know it's important. We talk about it. 
But it's just this whole. Okay. So what? What do I do with whole? Well, what does that mean? Because if we just leave it at that holy, and it's such a crucial part of our preparation for heaven, but we don't really understand what it means, or we have these preconceived notions of what holiness is, and it's not really a full picture of holiness, then we're really not being very well prepared. And, and Peter says, this is part of our preparation. So what does it mean to be holy? Well, Peter kind of alluded to it in this passage, but, but it's not just reading this passage and, and well, now I've got a, a definition of holiness. Now you have to kind of look beneath the surface, look at what he's saying, and then and dig a little deeper in that. If you look first at just the, the word itself there, holy, we find the Greek word hagios, and it literally means to be set apart, sacred, consecrated. In Leviticus 11, where this command was originally written, it says, since it is written, that command is originally found in Leviticus chapter 11. And it's, it's in the middle of this description about Israel being separate and consecrated. Because it's found in the very midst of describing these food commands and what's clean and unclean and what to eat and what not to eat. Because even down to the things they eat, the things they did, everything in the people of Israel's life was meant to be different than the people around them. And so God was giving them, you can look in the book of Leviticus, all of these laws that were meant to set them apart and make them different. It was their their way by, by observing these rules, it was their way to show other people that they were in fact separate. And we also see this word holy used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the things of the tabernacle and later the temple and the people of God. And it's, it's basically talking about anything that was set apart for the purpose of being used by and for God. Things set apart for a special purpose. In my family, we have this red plate, and, and around the edge of it, it's got white letters, and it says, you are special today. And it's a special plate. You don't just use it willy-nilly. It's, it's not just a plate you, you warm up your leftover pizza on. That's a special plate that we use for, uh, my mom will use it on, on their anniversary or for birthdays. And, and she would put that plate out on the table and, and in our place when it was a special day for us. And, and it's a reminder, today you are special. It's used, it's set apart for something special. And that's what this word holy literally talks about. But if we stop there and we say, all right, that's it, that, that's holiness, we run the risk of being legalistic. And we become obsessed with seeking a rule-based holiness, where holiness has only to do with pulling out of the world around us. But think about this. If that were the case, if that's what holiness was, and, and that was it, that was the, 
easy fit in the box definition of holiness, why would God command us to be holy while we're still in this world? See, there's more to it. See, holiness is it's this separateness, but it's also meant to be all-inclusive. Now, before you jump and say, oh boy, oh boy, she's, she's getting in the heresy. Hear me out. Peter said here in verse 15, we're to be holy in all our conduct. It, it's all-inclusive. It should be about everything in our life. Holiness should inform every part of our life. It's not just a box that we open on special occasions or like that plate that we pull out on, on special occasions for a special reason. And sometimes I think what we've done when we think about holiness and this, this word hold, holy, we focused so much on holiness as a separateness thing that we've made it into a separate thing. But Peter says, no, it's not a separate thing. It's an all-inclusive thing. It should affect every part of your life. Holiness is also a matter of obedience. It's a command, no doubt. It's, it's listed right here, and it says, we're commanded to be holy as God is holy. But it's something we have to actually choose to obey and pursue. Now, you guys know I'm not a parent, but for those of you who are, you understand this concept. Because you can give a child a command, go clean your room, go do the dishes, you can tell them to do something, but do they do it every time? I think we could probably all say with a resounding no. They don't. Otherwise, life would be so much easier if kids just did what we told them to do. But they don't. See, obedience, we can, we can say, do this. But the child has to actually choose to do it. And they might think, oh, well, mom's a mean mom. She's making me clean my room. She's not making them clean their room. They're, they're the ones they actually have to go and clean it. See, holiness is a matter of obedience because... It's still a choice. Our obedience is still a choice. God commanded holiness, but we still have to choose to pursue it. And that leads to the last thing that holiness is. We're trying to understand what holy means. Holiness is a matter of desire. It's a heart matter. See, Peter talked in this passage about the passions of the former life. But holiness should be a passion of the new life. It's having a desire to be more like Christ. Having a desire to be in fuller unity with Him. How many of you, just by raise of hands, have a younger sibling? Have or had a younger sibling? If you had or have a younger sibling, you may at some point have become frustrated with said younger sibling because they tried to copy you. 
right? Or am I the only one that that applies to, right? We, we have siblings, and they try to do what we do. And, and I remember my sister doing that to me. I have a younger sister, and she would try to copy me. And I was so annoyed because I was like, I've got my own style. I've got my own thing. I want to be my own person. And she's trying to copy me. She's, it's annoying. Stop it. And I would get so frustrated with her. But I remember one time, my mom explained to me. She said, now, Jessica, she's doing this because she looks up to you. Right? And some of you may have had this conversation with some of your kids. She said, she's doing it because she looks up to you and she wants to be like you. And she told me a phrase that some of you have heard or maybe used. She said, Jessica, imitation is the greatest form of what? Flattery. See, that's what, that's how holiness is. It's this heart of admiration for God. And it says, God, I want to be like you. I, I just, I want to be around you. I want to be like you. I, I want to mimic you. I want to copy you. <coughs> and, and I so desire that, that I want my life to mimic you. See, at its heart, holiness is becoming more like Christ. And he's set the perfect example for being holy. That's why he said, be holy how? As I am holy. Now, I know for some of you, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, this is a whole lot to just swirl around in my head. And, uh, that, that's a whole lot of heavy. So let me, let me put it this way. When I think about holiness, to me, it's a little bit like painting. Now, some of you guys know that I, I like to paint in my free time. That's kind of one of my hobbies, especially with watercolors. That's my favorite medium. Um, some of you guys may even have something that I painted for you. <clears throat> and and I love watercolors because they're easy to blend, they're, they're graceful, and, and I, I, I just love working with watercolors. And so imagine with me this picture of painting. Now, I can paint an image with just one color. But if I put even a drop of another color into that first color, what happens? It begins, it begins to spread and change. It changes the color I originally had. So if I paint, for example, like a, a blue circle, and I add in a drop of red, what color is it going to become? Um, the, the red will spread through the blue and it'll make purple. I mean, we, we, we see that in preschool, mixing colors, kindergarten. And, and we learn what colors make what. <clears throat> and so what starts to happen if I drop that bit of red into that blue, my original color begins to resemble the color that was added in. But here's the thing. That change doesn't happen if I just hold the paintbrush in my hand and I say, all right, I've got a blue circle and a, a red paintbrush that's been dipped in red paint, and now I have purple. Well, no. You have to actually let the paintbrush 
dip into the color that you've already painted. My blue won't just become purple. I have to apply the second color. And then it begins to change. It begins to spread through. And what I love, especially with watercolors, and anyone who's worked with watercolors has seen this, what I love about watercolors is that you can actually kind of watch this happen. See, other things you have to kind of mix them in together, and it takes a little bit more work, but with watercolors, you just kind of stick the paintbrush onto that color, and, and you can just watch it, and it just kind of swirls, mixed together, and the blue becomes a swirly purple, and it's, it's graceful. It's a graceful blending. It's not like strict bold lines blending. It's fluid and flowing, and, and it's a graceful change. See, that's kind of the picture that I get when I think about holiness. Because that's what holiness should do in us. When we allow the blood of Christ, red, the work of the cross and the resurrection to actually flow over us, when that red dips into our lives, our, our world, our blue, if you will, it begins to swirl within us, and it's not a harsh, strict, legalistic work, and it's not an impossible standard, it's a beautiful grace, and it changes us, it transforms us, it's like watching that color just start to trickle in and swirl in with the rest of the color around it. And it transforms every part of us until our lives don't look like what they were before. We look like something new, something changed, something holy, something that more closely resembles God. It's not just a, a list of do's and don'ts and have-tos and no ways. It's, it's our hearts and lives being changed to look more like God. See, because when we more closely resemble God, what we're doing is preparing ourselves for that day when our hope will be realized and we'll actually be with God. We practice holiness here in preparation for the day when we will be in the presence of holiness himself. See, our hope, this, this message of Easter, our hope should lead to holiness. And our holiness results in changed living. So that's why over the next few weeks, We'll be focusing on this idea, I am changed. Because the message of hope that we have now because of Easter changes us. It changes our relationships and our appetites and our attitudes and our identities. And it flows freely into every part of our lives. Until we don't look like what we used to look like. We look more like now, I want to tell you a story about a guy, it's his life, his testimony, if you will, and it's not like a crazy, dramatic story. I didn't go Googling trying to find, like, oh, what's the craziest thing I can find to share with you guys this morning? It it's probably sounds pretty similar to some of your guys' stories and testimonies. 
but this guy, he didn't, he didn't grow up a Christian, and he came into a relationship with Christ in his like early adult years. And before he met Christ, he still kind of considered himself like a, a religious guy. He went to church. In fact, he had since he was little. He knew all the Sunday school answers and knew how to answer every question. And he, he followed all the rules. You know, the, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't hang with those that do. He, he knew all the rules and he followed them to a T. In fact, at work even, he was known as being a pretty strict rule follower. All his friends knew that he was a hard, honest worker. He was loyal. He could be, at times, a bit of a hothead, but, but nothing super serious. That was something he was working on. And so when he came into a relationship with Christ in his early adult life, there wasn't this, like, drastic change. I mean, it kind of changed the, the crowd he hung around with and... and Occasionally, he'd kind of take some of those risky steps of faith, you know, kind of like what, what Chris did last week, encouraging you to step out from your seat and, ooh, it's a little, a little risky, a little scary. But he, he, he would do that and kind of watch and, and whisper when the pastor called people to come up to the altar. He, he'd make those steps of faith. And he had his mountaintop experiences with God, those, those seasons of intense fervor and awe for God that a lot of us come, uh, experience accompanying with like a mission trip or a conference or uh, a big life event or something. He had those kinds of moments. But eventually those would kind of, you know, even out, which they do. And he had convicting moments as well where he had to kind of confess and own up to his mistakes. But again, nothing, nothing drastic. He was, in every sense of the word, ordinary. And for about the first two and a half, three years of his walk with Christ, that, that's how his life was. It was steady. It was good. He was walking with the Lord and doing what he knew to do. He was a good Christian guy. But one day, everything changed for him. See, one day he was just this average Christian guy and following Christ and doing what he knew to do. But then the next day, his life was just on fire. I mean, he, he quit his job. He started traveling around to speak to people, to tell them about God. I mean, he's practically starting riots downtown in his hometown because he's just, he just up and start preaching it and telling people about the good news. And he's starting churches. He went from being a rule follower for, for rules sake to actually pushing the envelope and challenging people to really think about why they were doing what they were doing. And by the end of this guy's life, he was known as a radical Christian. The people who knew him, they said, man, he's, he's changed. He's totally different. He was bold and inspiring. He's the kind of guy that we read about in a book or we hear about on the radio and we say, man, I want to be like that guy. And you might ask, okay, Jessica, so what changed? Because, I mean, that, that's pretty drastic. Something pretty monumental must have happened in his life to cause that kind of change, right? What happened was that he came face to face with the hope of Easter. 
I mean, he, he came face to face with it. It just, it wrecked him. He knew who Christ was. He followed Christ. But he came to the realization that his faith wasn't meant to be just something he did. It was something that would totally transform his entire way of living. And when he experienced that hope, and he allowed that message to kind of actually dip into his life, it completely changed him. And he said, okay, but what happened? Like, like there must have been something that happened that spurred that on. Like, maybe he was in a car crash, and it was just this, this life-changing moment where he almost died, but, but God rescued him, and he felt like that was his calling to turn his life and do something great for God. Okay, maybe he had like a heart attack or something, and it was kind of a wake-up call. What happened? No. It wasn't any of those things. He came face-to-face with the hope of Easter. And that in itself was enough to change him. You might say, well, that's it, that's it? I mean, that's so simple. We hear about that every year. I don't have that kind of same response. But what, what's going on here? Well, it might help if you knew who this guy was. His name was Simon. But most people came to know him as Peter. See, he's the author of this letter that we've been reading this morning. Peter, the Apostle Peter. And you might say, okay, Jessica, that's not fair. I mean, clearly, obviously, obviously, he had a reason to change. I mean, he was there with Christ. He, he saw Christ crucified. He, he saw him buried, and then he was back to life. I mean, okay. Like, of course, he's, he's going to change. Duh. But friends, he was changed because of the exact same thing that we read about in the Bible. And he went on to demonstrate holiness, this holiness that we read here in First Peter, to teach others how to be holy because he had come to grips with the same message that we have recorded in our Gospels. See, because that's the kind of radical, total life change that the Gospel is able to produce in us. And so my question for you guys today is this. Are you changed? Are you changed? Because you've heard the story of Easter probably several times. But are you allowing the message, the hope of Easter to actually dip into your life and transform you? Is your life on earth actually beginning to resemble God? See, because it's easy to just hold that paintbrush that you dipped into the red and say, I've got the red, I've got the blood, I've got it, I'm good. And that's important by all means, because that's that's kind of representative of, of salvation. It's accepting, picking up the red, and that forgiveness that God offered at the cross. And if you haven't done that, we would love to talk with you about how to, how to pick that up, how to accept that salvation. But that's not where it stops. God calls us to actually apply that 
to our lives. And it's a totally different thing if we've actually allowed that to, to flow into our lives, into our way of living, and change us to make us new and different and transform us into something holy. Are you changed? Would you buy your hands and pray with me? Father, you blessed us with this reminder that we get every year called Easter. This beautiful message of hope and salvation and life. Father, convict our hearts if we've let that grow stale. If we've let that fade away. If we've forgotten about it. Father, help us to take hold of the blood and let it dip into our lives and actually transform us in every way. Give us a totally new and changed way of living that's, that's seen by the people around us. Father, we don't want to just hold on to that paintbrush and say we've got the blood. Father, we want, we desire to be changed. We desire to be more like you. Father, give us the courage and strength to let it transform us. To let that hope transform us. And it's in your holy and powerful name that we pray because we know that you not only able, but willing to do this to us. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you again about our local church conference in here. We're going to start in about 45 minutes after the meal here. And so make your way back in here in about 45 minutes. But now, hear the word of the Lord as Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go.